Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. Uh, if you're uh, with us for the first time, God bless you. We're glad you're here. Uh, if this is your first time back in a while, and we're glad to have you here. Uh, if you're a veteran with us, we're glad you're here. Um, I want you to go ahead and get your mind set for Palm Sunday today. If our uh, little rugrats coming around with the palm branches and all that, we're, we're not a, enough to get you there. Uh, let's turn our, our minds and our hearts to the Word of God, Matthew chapter 21 and Psalm 24. So we're going to zig and zag between the two today. If you have a Bible, Bible app, anything like that, go ahead and get it, get it warmed up. Um, I want to go ahead and put a bug in your ear about next week. Next week at 9 and 11, we have our Easter services here with kind of a, a brunch slash fun fest kind of thing on the roof in between the services. Uh, and I'm going to tell you this, the, 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 the six-inch putt of witnessing is Easter Sunday, okay? Uh, it's one of those weeks that if you can't do it then, then uh, the question is, when are you going to do it and how are you going to do it and, and, and when will that take place? I want to encourage you, moms, dads, sisters, brothers, cousins, whoever's in town for Easter, aging parent, whatever the case may be, okay, invite them to come hear the gospel, and to share with God's people next week, okay? Um, we had some people that were baptized into Christ last weekend down at the beach. Amen. Praise God for that. And we, uh, you know, one of the things I love about newer Christians is that they are hard to keep quiet about Jesus. They, they tend to tell everybody they know about Jesus. They're excited for their, uh, their new life, uh, and they want everybody to experience what they feel is going on inside of them at the moment. And, and us veteran Christians, I think, as time goes on, we stay focused on discipleship and some of those things, and we lose that fervor to share the good news of Jesus. And so today, as we're here on Palm Sunday, I just want to say to us, okay, uh, we got to keep that, that fire hot, all right, in the church. So invite, 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 uh, tell people about the good news of Jesus and let them know what a blessing it is. All right, amen. So, uh, I want to begin with an abstract drawing, all right? And, and uh, in a second here, I'm going to ask you what you see, all right? Now, let me ask you this. How many of you see a horse or a donkey of some kind? All right? Put your hand down. If you see a seal of some kind, go ahead and raise your hand. And it's exactly like it was at the first service. So here's how this went from my perspective, being able to see the whole room. How many of you see a donkey? A lot of hands go up. How many of you see a seal? Like three hands go up, and everybody looks around, and then more start going up, and then more start going up to where it's about half, half, half. Okay, that little uh, experiment there illustrates the point of the drawing, which is the power of suggestion. Uh, this was a big deal this week because uh, J.K. Rowling had put this out and told everybody what, what she saw uh, on Twitter. She actually saw a mermaid, which I don't know about that, I see, I, uh, but she's more creative than I am, so we'll give her that. Uh, she said a seal or a mermaid uh, left the donkey completely out. Actually, no, 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 it was the opposite. She's the one that saw the donkey and everybody else was like, no, it's a seal. It's kind of like the blue gold dress thing that we did a couple of years ago. All right, so, so this actually comes from a textbook in the 60s at Cornell. Um, go ahead and put the next slide up. So this little drawing came out, and really it was an experiment on the power of suggestion. I mean, if I get up here, there are two ways for me to get you to see a horse without you knowing I'm getting you to see a horse. I can get up, I can talk about horses for a while, and then I put it up, you're going to be more likely to see a horse. The other thing I can do 
is get up and say, all right, I'm about to show you a picture of a horse. And I put it up there, and then you see a horse as opposed to seeing a seal, or if I changed it around about seals or whatever. And so their point is about the power of suggestion. Now, here's, here's where I'm going with this. When you read a familiar passage like Palm Sunday or uh, the adjoining text, which is about the cleansing of the temple, where Jesus drives the money changers out, it's easy because for so many different years and looking at the text so many different times to just go, oh, I get it, it's a horse, right? Uh, I want to try to look at this thing differently today because I think part of understanding what you see in the Palm Sunday text where Jesus arrives triumphantly into Jerusalem and what comes right after it, the changing of the money, uh, money changers in the temple and the cleansing of the temple, that they really do belong together. But for reasons that we may not necessarily grab right up front. Uh, so I'm used to looking at the text and seeing the horse. Uh, but I want to maybe say, all right, let's look at the seal in the picture today and see if there's not more there than what we have maybe thought. All right. So for instance, a lot of people will say, yeah, he cleansed the money changers out of the temple because of the hypocrisy he saw and everything. It's like, yeah, probably that's a part of it, I'm sure, but it's not the whole picture. Hypocrisy's everywhere. There's no reason to pick that day in that place. You can find it almost everywhere. We are virtual hypocrisy machines as human beings, and uh, we, can, we can, you know, say we want, th- we believe in this, and then go do that, and we can say, oh, you ought to love people, and then go speak with a forked tongue towards somebody that 10 minutes later. I mean, we're, we are extremely good at hypocrisy, and so if Jesus was not walking around with a shortage of hypocrisy and it just jumped out to him. It, there was some connection between those two events. And that's what I want us to look at today. In Matthew 21, here's what the text says. This is the actual story of the triumphal entry that we remember here on Palm Sunday. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, now this was not, by the way, a long ride. I just walked this road a month ago in person. It's probably a, 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 about as long of a walk for, as from here to the target on Auto Parkway down the way. It's not super far. You can walk it. It's not an easy walk, but it's a, especially if you're on a donkey, you can get there, no problem. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead, go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? Remember that line. Who is this? And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. All right, so this happens on the first, you know, Palm Sunday, officially, that ever takes place. He enters Jerusalem, gentle, riding on a donkey. Now, if tradition serves right, then on theory, on on this day, it's the Passover feast. Everybody's gathered. Hundreds of thousands of Jews are there. And here comes Jesus. And the priest would have been reading this text, Psalm 24. 
Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Kind of like they just asked, who is this guy on the donkey? Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he? Who is he? This King of glory, the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. So the people in the streets and the priests at the temple, they were asking the same question. Okay, who is this king? Now what's cool is, this was usually a, a back and forth. We don't do a ton of responsive readings here uh, at New Vintage. Maybe we should do a few more. But that's where I would call out something and you would respond with something. Okay? Uh, and so it would be, you know, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the people would say, back and forth. So it would be read to some extent antiphonally sometimes. Okay? So I picture it that way, how cool it would be. And then if you take the text of Palm Sunday and you lay it down close by, everybody, it's pretty similar. Praise? Question. Who is this? That's Jesus of Nazareth. Here he comes, Hosanna in the highest. You know, the murmuring. Oh, this guy, the guy, the guy that healed those, healed those two blind people just the other day, right? Isn't he... He, he's that, that guy, the guy that rose Lazarus from the grave, Lazarus's house, you can see it from, I mean, I don't know where his exact house was, but you can see Bethany where Lazarus's house was from the Temple Mount. It's not very hard. It's just across the, the valley, two miles, and you're up high, and you're looking at another high point with a big valley in between. You can see it. And that fact, that's where he slept often, was up there probably at Lazarus's house. So, and then walk down back into the temple, go back, sleep for the night there. It's like a Spring Hill Suites or something for Jesus. He would go back. <laughs> that's where he would sleep. But you sit there and you go, yeah, that guy. The one you heard about. Healer of the blind. Raiser of the dead. And now here he comes. And they would have known. They would have known what the prophets have said about the Messiah. And not everybody recognized him as the king of glory as such. The Romans certainly did not. This was the day that God's people had been praying for. Uh, but the Romans were there to make sure that didn't really happen. They, they wouldn't let the Jews have a king. And in fact, they said, you can have a high priest, but we have to approve him. And then they said, okay, and by the way, just in case your high priest gets any ideas when all these hundreds of thousands of Jews come for Passover and such, uh, we're going to take in between those holy days, we'll let you have the, the sacred garments for those days, but other than those days, we're going to keep those under lock and key just to make sure that nobody gets any ideas about any of that kind of stuff. And just in case you guys get thinking about it, we're going to build, Herod the Great did this. He built a huge fortress, military fortress, called the Antonia, kind of named after Mark Anthony. Four 14-story military towers connected by bridges, right, embedded into the side of the temple. Just in case you get any ideas. It'll never happen. And just in case of that, we'll put 600 soldiers with spears all along the upper ridge of the temple, just in case. So we're going to keep you from your king. We're going to take away all the sacred garments of the high priest, and we're going to put our dude in there, somebody we feel good about, somebody we know we can control. We'll put a military fortress in the temple, a Roman one, that's by the way that Antonio, that's where Jesus and Pilate had their little powwow, it was right there, you can go stand there too. Then, 
uh, if that's not enough, we're going to make sure that the, the gleaming spears of our soldiers are, you know, it's, you know how like uh, windshields of cars or things like that would blind you? I've always thought, based on the way that thing's set up, if they were there, some would hit their spearheads and maybe it'd be like, oh, you know, I guess they didn't have shades back then or sunglasses, but the gleaming spears of the Romans. And man, here comes a guy that people think is going to be the king. If I'm a Roman soldier, I'm not even remotely worried. Seems kind of unimpressive. Coming in on a donkey's colt. Little town, shabby town called Nazareth. But the Jews knew better. They heard something different. They heard echoes of the prophets. They remember the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zacharias, uh, Zacharias said, I will guard my temple and protect it from invading armies. Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble. Riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. The great prophet Isaiah echoed that as well. He says, the Lord has sworn to Jerusalem by his own strength, I will never again hand you over to your enemies. Never again will foreign warriors come and take away your grain and wine. Within the courtyards of the temple, you yourselves will drink the wine that you have pressed. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. And so they, you can kind of picture them almost putting these stars together in this constellation. Zechariah, Isaiah, dude on the donkey, miracles, Passover. I see. I see. And so they begin to imagine that this might be the day that the Messiah finally comes, that finally it was happening, that they could imagine that this day is upon them that they had been praying for, the prophets had talked about, and it was finally here. I mean, the rabbis had told them it's going to happen on Passover, that the Messiah would come and judge the ungodly, and here it is. It's Passover week, hundreds of thousands of us. The time is right. The time's right. It must be here. People turn to each other and start saying, hey, this prophet from Nazareth, Jesus, he, I think he's the one. He may be the one. He might just have to be the one, because I don't know if there's anybody else behind him that fits the script quite as well it's this one. He just healed those two people who were blind. He just raised that guy from the dead. Here he is. But he doesn't come like the arrogant Roman generals on their war horses. No, he does. And he comes in humility. Like Solomon did. The original temple builder himself. The son of King David who rode on a mule through the very same Kidron Valley when he came into Jerusalem to take up the throne as king. Jesus comes from the Mount of Olives where the prophets had said the Messiah would come from, and overwhelmed with joy, the people start calling out for him. They start laying their garments down. And as he gets closer, they say, bless the king. Uh oh Bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise the new son of David. Blessed is the king of Israel. All right. So if I'm them, I'm there, I'm shouting out, and if he's who we think he is, then he's going to come in the gate, that eastern gate there, ride right 
into the middle of things, then over to the Antonia, and he's going in, and he's going to drive those punk, ungodly Romans out of here. And so in comes Jesus through the eastern gate. He rides right into the middle of things, and he keeps going. He doesn't go right. He goes straight. In one ear of the temple, out the other, to the marketplace. Wait, 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 wait. The Romans are over there. I don't know if anybody told you. It's that ginormous monstrosity, the one with all the soldiers. That's where you need to go. What do you need, a pigeon or a lamb or something? Did you forget your sacrifices back at the thing? What's, what's the problem here? Why are you over there? And the next thing you know, he enters the temple area and drives out everybody who's buying and selling there. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He doesn't go to the Roman fortress. He doesn't go to the heart of enemy occupation. He doesn't go to the barracks to drive out the ungodly. He goes to the temple. And he drives out the people who seem to be just providing a service of convenience for people coming to worship. But uh, allow me to illustrate what was going on. Raise your hand if you've been to Disneyland. Okay, that should be almost everybody. All right. You've been there on a hot day, probably, if you went. Anaheim can get a little toasty. Um, I grew up about 15 minutes from there in, in the far east part of Long Beach. And... I just remember, the, the temp- I can remember the temperature jump from Long Beach to Anaheim in the summer. You'd leave your house, 15 minutes later, it was like 15 degrees hotter. You go in, you, 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 know, you beat your kids or whatever you got to do to get them in the car happily for the happiest day they're going to have in their life, they think. You, you get them out of the car, you, you get on 18 shuttles. You walk a half a mile this way, then another mile that way. Oh, no, sorry, that's the wrong gate. You need to be that way. You go through, and you finally get in. Now it's noon. You're toasty. You're hot. You're getting thirsty. Your feet hurt. Your knees hurt. Your back hurts. You're about to hurt somebody else. (laughs) You have to wait another one-hour line for a ride in the last 20 seconds. And you're thirsty. And over there is a little a little rolling cart with an umbrella on it. How are you, sir? Can I have some water, please? Sure. That'll be $8. (laughs) Did you guys not take enough of my hide when I walked in with the tickets? You need more? Like, you need more of my money. $8 for a bottle of water? Coincidentally, all the drinking fountains are out of service or still closed for COVID for some reason. But the water industry is booming at Disneyland. And you know why you're going to pay that $8? Because you got no other choice. And so you're going to pay it, and then you're going to gripe about it, and then you're going to drink your water, and you'll be thirsty again two hours from now. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> right? Something like that is going on in the temple. Disney pricing. For the elites around the temple, the people have traveled a long way to get there. In fact, if you can see, I mean, 
when you see the route that Jesus walked himself to get all the way to Jerusalem from Nazareth or Capernaum or wherever he was coming from, that's a long, stinking walk. You know, you can get on as many camels as you want. That's a journey to get there. He probably spent 120 days of his year on pilgrimage out of 365, just going to Jerusalem for the four festivals. That's about 120 days a year. So I can imagine he knows what it's like to come in and you need a goat or you need a sheep or you need a dove or you need something to be able to sacrifice in the temple. And they say, oh, I would be happy to service you, sir. How about $35 for that pigeon? But things five bucks like a mile back. Oh, yes, but we, you know, we have very special pigeons here, sir. Uh, you, know, you pay a good price. You'd be very happy with the pigeons. God loves these pigeons more. You know, that kind of stuff seemed to be going on in the temple, and Jesus looks at it, and he's mad. But he's not mad for the reasons we think, I don't think. I think it's part of it. He says why, but, but, but why is he mad about that? Had he never seen greed before? As often as he talks about money, this seems to be an issue. But I think it's more than that. There is something in this story that connects the two. That he doesn't go take on the Romans matters. And that he seems preoccupied with the holiness of God's own people. In Mark 1, when you read the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that makes Mark unique as a a gospel is you open it up and the first thing out of the chute that happens is Jesus goes to the synagogue to preach. And in the middle of the service, some demon-possessed dude starts acting out. He's not out there. He's in the synagogue. So you find yourself going, okay, well, who lets all these demon-possessed dudes into the synagogue? How did they not know? Or did it just well up in him during the service? What happened? But that was the order of the day is Jesus confronting the people of God. But I don't think it's because, as the modern-day hypocrites uh, that don't believe in Jesus think, um, that, that God just hates religious people or religion. No, 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 it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. I'm going to conjecture that the reason that Jesus does this is because he is coming in to initiate the kingdom of God and its arrival. But what he's saying is to them, he knows where this is going. This is Sunday. Friday and thir- Thursday and Friday are going to be pretty eventful days. And beyond that, then you got the empty tomb. And on the other side, this is his plan A, his people. They are not ready for this. They are acting wicked and ungodly. They're cheating each other, and they are, not, uh, they are not ready for this. That's why he goes, and he's, he's arguing with the Pharisees all the time. It goes beyond just, okay, I can't stand them because they're hypocrites. He's trying to get them to stop being hypocritical for a reason. And it's not just that the people who run the Academy Awards or something don't like them. It's because God wants to use them. He wants to work through them. N.T. Wright uh, has a, I don't, I can't never think of titles like this, but he has a, a great little book called The Day the Revolution Began. I think this is the day the revolution began. This right here is the day, and it's not just because here comes Jesus, and the Romans are ready. They got the spears. They got the spears. They got the power. We got 
Pilate over there, you got Herod nearby, you've got all these things, you got all this, this power. And in comes Jesus on a donkey's colt. And what's bothering him is what he perceives to be the unholiness of God's people. And people, in the act of doing what they're doing, that are taking advantage of people that they should be brother to brother, sister to sister with, and they're preventing them from being able to offer proper sacrifices to God if they don't have the money. So they're even impeding others from being able to sanctify themselves before God and to worship God in the beauty of his holiness. So what if, what if it's not so much about just hypocrisy, which, you know, again, he's got that on tap anywhere he wants. What if it's about driving out the ungodliness from among God's people so that the great movement of God can take place, so that acts can happen? It's about getting them ready. You know, when the Messiah runs into town, you just never know where he's going to go. You don't know what he's going to do. I think that may be part of what, what intrigues him. Us about him. You know, um, I think it's noteworthy that Jesus seems fairly disinterested with Rome throughout his entire life. Everybody else is obsessed with Rome. Hey, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, I don't know. Show me a coin. Well, here's a coin. Well, whose picture's on it? Like he didn't know. He's like, okay, well, that's me. Give, give to him what's his and give to God what is God's. And remember, when they bring the charges against him near Good Friday, they go to Rome to execute a power that they don't have over him. And they know they don't have it. And then what Rome will figure out is, guess what? We don't have it either. We thought we did. We thought the whip and the cross and all that stuff would get it done. But then the empty tomb has a different sermon to preach. And it's like, no, you couldn't get in there either. So do you see the difference here between a power that, that arrives with war horses and chariots and spears and emperors versus one who arrives <laughs> quietly, not saying a word himself, by the way, letting the people say whatever needs to be said and him just simply acknowledging, well, you know, when, when he's face to face with that, it is as you say. <laughs> I mean, it's and the, the world was never the same. Now, we can sit there and, and say, well, that's, you know, that's because they never had a you know, government as corrupt as the ones we see in our world. Are you kidding me? Please learn some history. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Ancient Rome was as corrupt and disgusting and vile of a society as there has ever been. I mean, I could tell you some stories, but I can't because we got kiddos in the room. But they're bad, okay? Of real stories from the emperor's palaces where they wrote it in their own hand. These were evil, wicked, vile people. And guess what? You learn when you go to the Temple Mount. I mentioned this either at NVU when we were studying uh, New Testament backgrounds or, or in here. But when you go to the temple, when you look at the temple wall, the side of it, all the stones are different. Like, picture in geology, they taught you about, like, sedimentary rock, 
You got one rock at this layer, and then it changes colors, essentially, and then it goes to another. And, and, and it's, what would happen was a civilization would come into the temple, take over, burn everything to the ground, and then build something brand new right on top of it. And then the next country would come in, burn them to the ground, and build something new on top of that. So when you're walking on the Temple Mount now, you're walking on stones that are way above those stones that Jesus actually stepped on. You're in the same spot, but those stones are way down there, maybe 30, 40 feet underneath your feet. And in between you and those stones are all the civilizations that have come and gone since then. Nobody thought anybody was going to take out Rome. And yet it wasn't that long after. And you can look and you can say, okay, well, here's, here's the second temple that Ezra and Nehemiah built. That's the, the temple that's there now, the little pieces of it that are left. And the, the Wailing Wall is about it that's left. Then you have, you know, the, the Persians and, and you got the Maccabees come in. And you got, you know, the Greeks have their little heyday. I left them, I skipped over them, but you get, Greeks have their heyday. And then you've got the... Uh, um, uh, the, the Romans come in, and then eventually they get knocked out. And then here come the Muslims, and then you got the Turks, and you've got, and there's this, everybody thinks they're so powerful. And yet I'm confident that neither today nor next Sunday will there be anybody anywhere having a church service to Herod billions since still declare his name and his truth because that is a power of which human governments cannot comprehend so sisters and brothers that's us right now we're the called to be that way we're the ones that are part of the revolution of Jesus and what he does in the world and it's one that we do not with the, again the chariots or the war horses or or stuff like that. It's not that kind of empire he's building. As he said, his kingdom is not of this world. It's built instead with different things, with a whole different set of armor that we wear. And so on Palm Sunday, may we, just as he went in that day and he cleaned his father's temple out, he cleaned his own house first. How about this? 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Apostle Paul writes this. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? We're the temple. Now we are the temple. And so we say today on Palm Sunday, not just Hosanna in the highest, but we're willing to open ourselves up and say, God, if you need to, cleanse your temple. You can start here, but I don't mean just the lobbies of the building. I'm talking about the hearts of the people. There's a prayer that goes with Hosanna. And it sounds something like, search my heart, O God. Search and see if there's any wicked way in me. Or it sounds like, cleanse my heart, O God. Make it new. Or it may sound like, um, you know, as a, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, my soul is thirsting for you. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and glory. My lips will glorify you. Your love is better than life, psalmist writes. Sounds something like that. And so 
It's coming saying, God, if you're going to begin the revolution in here with our people and with me, then you've got some cleaning to do. I acknowledge it. And so, Lord, have at it. This is your house. Clean it as you see fit. And so as we say Hosanna with our mouth, we say Hosanna by offering him a sacrifice of holiness. To say, I will not be involved in the stuff that, we, that I know that you despise. I will not, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping clear of greed, of lust, of gossip and slander, of, of, a, of, a, of a critical spirit, of a, of a bad temper, of a whatever. I'm going to step clear. I'm asking you, God, to cleanse, clean and cleanse this temple. Because it belongs to you. We are the temple. We're called not just to say Hosanna with our lips, but Hosanna with our holiness. We don't just praise Jesus with our lips. We say he is the king of glory by welcoming his cleansing of us, the temple. He doesn't focus on the religious because they're more hypocritical or evil than everybody else. He does it because he believes his people, that's us by the way, are called to be the light. And the darkness wants to overcome it. And he has made us, the church, for whatever reason, the epicenter of his work in the world. We are his A. He's got no plan B. And so on Palm Sunday, according to tradition, they would read these words. The priests of the temple would have been reading these. And listen for the echoes of Palm Sunday in here. Open up, ancient gates. Open up, ancient doors. Let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle, invincible. Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors, let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of heaven's armies. He is the king of glory. Open up that the king of glory may come in, sister, brother. On Palm Sunday, the king of glory came into the temple when he's been going into temples and cleaning house ever since. So, on this day, may we say Hosanna as we invite the King of Glory to cleanse this temple today. And that's us. The promise of Palm Sunday, sisters and brothers, is that yes, Easter will overcome Good Friday. It will happen. That question, who is the King of Glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord invincible in battle. Invincible in battle. Invincible. I thought to myself, it's like, you know, the great gladiators of old were judged by how much punishment they could take and still stand. And you get to Good Friday, the night before that, the sins of the world are laid on his shoulders. I think my own would be enough to cripple a man. But you throw the rest of all y'all's in there. That's called a spiritual avalanche of sin. And there he is going through his own judgment day. And yet he stands and he keeps obeying. And then they bring him to Caiaphas's house. And they humiliate him and they beat him and they imprison him. And still he stands. And then they take him and they hand him over to the Romans and he's beaten there and he's whipped within an inch of his life 
And yet, there he stands. And then they put him on a cross, and there he hangs. And when he breathes his last, maybe somebody thought that line from Psalm 24, maybe he's not so invincible in battle. And then Sunday came. And he rises from the grave in victory. Still undefeated. Still, still undefeated. He raises from the grave and begins the work that God put him on the earth to do. Building a church against which the gates of hell could not prevail. As tough as he was. Willing to endure like he was. Willing to exercise its power humbly like he was. Without abusing power with swords and shields and things to get people to do whatever they wanted them to do. But to do it instead in a way like he did. To interpret power the way that he did. To look at money the way that he did. To look at greed the way he did. Brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ, the way he did. Faithfulness, as he did. And so then when he comes along and asks us, hey, if you want to follow me, you pick up your cross daily and follow me. And by the billions, they still say yes. Now that, that's power. That's power. The weight that Jesus bears the night of his betrayal. Remember Tim Keller putting it this way. He says, you know, if somebody in my church comes up and says, I don't like you anymore and I never want to see you again. It's like, it hurts my feelings a little bit, but then I'm over it. He's like, my wife comes up and says, I don't like you anymore and I don't want to see you again. He said, that hurts. That, that's bad because the love between us is, is longer, deeper, and more profound. In the garden, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He senses God has turned his back on him. And he feels a sadness that I'm not sure I'm capable of feeling. Especially when you take the sinfulness of humankind weighing on his shoulders. But before we get to the wreckage of the cross on Good Friday this week, sisters and brothers, in the glory of the cross, let's stand on the road as the King of glory approaches. And today, if you believe it, say today with your mouth and say tomorrow with your life, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And don't just say it with your mouth today. Ask yourself, okay, what am I going to say tomorrow or when I get distracted or when, I, when things get difficult? Because we are fickle people. We are a fickle people. Napoleon, it's reported, he was traveling through Switzerland with his army once. Thunderous applause as he rides into Switzerland. One of his supporters said to him, it must be delightful to be greeted with such demonstrations of enthusiastic admiration. Napoleon responded, blah. This same unthinking crowd under a slight change of circumstances would follow me just as eagerly to the scaffold. He was not wrong. 
And we are a people that will say Hosanna today and give us Barabbas tomorrow. May not be so among us. Instead, may our praise not be fickle, but instead faithful. May it be steadfast. And may the Lord cleanse this temple. This week, every week, may we stand in awe and say with Scripture, open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors and let the King of glory enter. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible. I'll add, still undefeated in battle. Open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors and let the King of glory enter. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of heaven's armies. He is the King of glory. And then we can say, his name is Jesus. Get to know him, won't you? Next week, bring somebody in here, and let's get them to know Jesus. In the meantime, let's say Hosanna with our mouths. Let's say it with our lives. And when we gather around the Lord's table right now, let's say, God, we invite you to cleanse this temple. Cleanse this temple. Not just the building or anything like that. I'm talking about this temple, the temple Paul talks about. This time we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and you, you should have gotten the elements on your way in, but if you didn't, uh, we have some folks here helping. Just put your hand in the air. We'll be happy to bring them to you. We serve a risen king. Uh, and as we take the Lord's Supper today, let's do so with a desire to see Jesus do his work among us and prepare us to be his people in the world. The revolution that we were intended to be. May it begin with us. Father, now with bread and cup, we remember Jesus Christ, your son, the one who suffered and died, the one who was raised from the grave, and the one that the people praised as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. Father, for the testimony of the prophets that pointed the way like signposts to a great, wondrous land, we give you thanks for their testimony. We give you thanks for the testimony of the apostles who wrote this down for us. And we give you thanks, Father, uh, for the gift of being together and being called to this mission in this world to help you put things back together that we broke. And so, Father, now with the hand of healing that only you possess, may you do your work in us. We invite you, Father, to clean your house, this temple, of human beings, broken and frail and hypocritical as we may be. Father, take us and transform us, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gift of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name.